There are all kinds of work in this world. Some kinds of work get you money, some don't. And a lot of the work we do isn't seen as work at all. It's invisible labor. That's the idea behind the article, A Modest Proposal for a Fair Trade Emotional Labor Economy in the Invisibility Issue of Bitch. Hey, um, my name is Leah Lakshmi Pjepsna and I am a queer, disabled, mixed-race Sri Lankan writer and cultural worker. Um, and you wrote this amazing article for the summer issue of Bitch, The Invisible Issue. Can you just read the first paragraph of it aloud? Yeah, totally. The thing about being a working class or poor and or disabled and or parenting and or black, indigenous or brown femme is that people are going to ask you to do stuff for them. Oh, are they ever... They are going to ask you to listen, do a favor, do an errand, drop everything to go buy them some cat food or crisis counsel, manage logistics, answer feelings emails, show up, empathize, build and maintain relationships, organize the child care, the access support, the food, be screamed at, de-escalate, conflict resolute. They're going to say, can I just pick your brain about something? And then they are going to send you a five paragraph email full of pretty goddamn complicated questions. It'd be real nice if you could get back to them ASAP. They're going to ask if you can email them your PowerPoint and all of your resources. Some of them will, people, will be people who are close to you. Some of them will be total strangers. Do you have a minute? For free. Forever. <laughs> thanks for sharing that, Leah. Um, yeah. So this, this article is all about the, the care economy and emotional labor. Uh-huh. So let's just start out with some basics, which is what is emotional labor? And how do you define what's called the care economy? Like what was the impetus yeah. to start putting language and definition <laughs> to the things that we now call emotional labor? Right. Well, um, I think the impetus was one half total frustration and um, one half like black and brown working class disabled feminism, you know, centered by femmes. You know, it's all of the things that are in the paragraph I just read. It's all of this labor that's, you know, mostly completely unpaid um, of caring, noticing, showing up. And that could be things as concrete in a way as doing disability support labor for a friend or somebody in your community um, that's physical. Um, It can be doing emotional support, um, you know, and it can be, and it's also, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about this recently. And I guess there's this meta document on Metafilter about emotional labor that's started as like a comment on Metafilter and is now like a 75 page thread. And it's people saying things like, yeah, and it's a lot of the people who commented on that, I think were heterosexual, cisgendered women. Um, But they were saying things like, yeah, it's like how I always remember when it's my partner's mother's birthday and I get the card and I get him to sign the card and I mail it. It's like all of that stuff that's, you know, that's so little, right? But actually it's really not. It's what holds up families, communities, um, movements, movements. And I think some of the impetus for it, um, this might be segueing into some of the other questions you asked, was, um, you know, I mostly just hang out with other queer fans, you know, who are mostly disabled and mostly of color and mostly working class, because I just deal with life by blocking out a lot of other stuff that bugs me. Um, And, you know, starting around five years ago, I was in having conversations with a lot of my femme friends who are political organizers and community organizers about the ways in which we did forms of organizing that weren't seen as quote unquote real organizing. Um, I remember really clearly talking to a friend of mine who's done a lot of sex work organizing where she was like, yeah, you know, a huge part of my organizing is talking with other people on the phone, you know, and it's not necessarily just about what are we doing with the rally? It's like, Oh, your kid got sick, you know? Oh, you're really stressed out. Oh, you're having a mental health moment. Um, 
oh, you're figuring out this really intense thing about your trauma. It's listening, it's noticing, it's showing up. I, I'm really, I'm lucky. Um, I'm 42 years old. I've been disabled for over 20 years now. And I've been autistic since birth or, you know, whatever. Um, I've been neurodivergent for a really long time. Um, and in the past decade of my life, I've been really lucky to be able to be a part of a disability community that's like mostly, that's, you know, mostly people of color, mostly queer. Um, that's what we call the disability justice movement, um, among other things. And I've been in disabled cutie pot communities online and in person where we give each other so much care. And so many of us, you know, across many different disabilities, share an experience of able-bodied people just continually forgetting that we exist, forgetting about our access needs, forgetting about disability. And there's kind of a joke that I have um, that I think is really true is that one of one of the hallmarks of community can be that we refuse to forget about each other and that we show up for all those, you know, to able-bodied world, annoying little disability moments. Um, and there's so many times in disability community where, you know, you see, I see people do things like, oh, you're out of your effects or I've got two pills. I'm going to mail it to you. I don't even know you, but we're on this Facebook group. Um, in, in the article, you write that far too often the emotional labor that's done isn't seen as, as labor. It's invisible. Um, the quote that really stuck out to me from your article was, it's seen as air, the little things you do on the side, not real organizing work, not real work, just talking about feelings and buying groceries. So in in your life, like when did you start to recognize that shift? Like when did you start to shift from recognizing that, from thinking that this wasn't important to recognizing that emotional labor takes work and energy and should be appreciated? Like was there a time to remember that changing for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's multiple things I could talk about, but one time that really jumps out at me was, um, so I lived in Oakland, California for seven years, and then in 2014, I moved back to Toronto, and I did it for a bunch of reasons, but a lot of it was that I was priced out. Um, when I moved to Oakland, it, it was really possible to have like a nice housing situation for $400, and I actually knew a lot of poor and working class queers, and especially queers of color, who had relocated to the Bay um, because you could be with other cutie park and you didn't have to be middle class or wealthy. And then Google hit again and the housing crisis hit and it's just gotten worse. And I just, I really needed to live someplace that was more accessible and more affordable. So I moved back to Toronto, which is one of my big homes. And, um, and you know, and basically what happened was like in my years living in Oakland, I had done so much free labor, you know, and I had wanted to do it and it felt like the right thing to do. And there was so much that was really powerful about it. I lived in two collective houses in a row where it was kind of an unpaid part-time job to live there. We, one in particular, we were a community center. We always had people staying there. We had events and meetings and, you know, potlucks and like, you know, 30 people on the couch and like, and, you know, a really terrible landlord and, a, you know, horrible conditions in the house where there's a black mold infestation and the roof was caving in and we got robbed five times. And it was like really and being home a lot. I was like, OK, like I'll I'll just throw in my time to this, you know, and long story short, I moved back to Toronto and I just remember being in, you know, my friend's house where it was just me and her and one other person. And it was so quiet and all those responsibilities fell away. And I just was like, oh, my God, that's why I've been so tired <laughs> So there's this there's this long history of activism around trying to get this kind of invisible emotional labor recognized and appreciated in some way. And in your article in Invisibility, you shout out the Black Women for Wages for Housework campaign, which started in 1980. And the Wages for Housework movement was 
just like it sounds, about shifting the way people think about labor that goes into taking care of a home and a family and arguing that people who do that kind of work should be compensated in some way. So what was it about the Black Women for Wages for Housework campaign that like most resonated with you around what you can and cannot do when caring for others and how that work should be appreciated? I mean, black, you know, the International Wages for Housework campaign, um, which is founded a little earlier, which was started in 1972, and, you know, Black Women for Wages for Housework, they have, like, I mean, they're still around. Like, they have a huge, complicated history um, that I can't even do justice to in this um, in this interview. But I, and, and I don't claim to know everything about, you know, those movements. But I guess when I heard about them, I was just like, wow, that's such an audacious demand. You know, just the title alone being, like, Wages for Housework. Like, it's the insistence that, like, housework is not just, oh, you know, it's not work, it's not time, it's not energy, you just, you know, you just, you just do the laundry, you just do the dishes. It's like, no, it's work. It's work, and it's feminized labor, and it should be paid. And I feel like there's a, an insistence embedded in that campaign that, like, it's skilled work, too, you know, because I think part of the sexism that goes into labor dynamics is the idea that care work or housework are not skilled labor, that anyone can do them. You know, it doesn't take any training. It's just whatever. And I think there's something in those campaigns that say it's it's work. It's skilled work. Industrial capitalism is built on the backs of free feminized labor. You know, there's no way that every all that all the ways that capitalism makes money could happen without emotional labor, without care, without people doing um, child care, home care and emotional care for free. Um, one of the essential questions um, that I started this piece with was, you know, I. I've been in tons and tons of conversations with other femmes about, and other disabled folks and people who are both about care labor and the ways we feel exploited and the ways we feel like we do all this work and we don't get recognized and it gets brushed off. And so my kind of like problem solving mind was like, okay, what would be a fair trade economy? Like what would be some rules of engagement that made this feel better? You know, cause I don't want to abolish care labor, but I want us not to feel screwed over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in, in your article, you lay out some ground rules for establishing a fair trade economy for emotional labor, which I think is so interesting because, like, as you just mentioned, all of this, I feel like, comes back to capitalism. It comes back to what is appreciated in our society depends on our economic system. And the root of emotional labor being not seen as actual work or appreciated that way comes from who's running our economy and what what are they valuing. So anyway, so, so you lay out some, grand, some ground rules for a fair trade economy for emotional labor. I'm not going to go through the whole list of ideas you suggest because there's a bunch and a lot of them are hilarious. But the very first one is that, quote, the fair trade emotional economics are consensual. Can 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 you lay out what that means? Yeah, I mean, I think well, one thing that I know personally for me has been something where I was like, oh, this doesn't feel good is when. And, it, and it's something I've seen in a lot of femme communities where people go, yeah, people just show up and they don't ask me if I have time. They don't say, hey, is this a good moment? They just go, here's this really big crisis situation. Fix it. You know, and there's just this assumption that you're available and that you can do it. Um, it comes from that place. Um, and for me, I was like, yeah, something I've seen a lot of femmes talking about is like, you know, I'm not saying don't ask me for help. I'm not saying don't ask me for resources, but value my time. Like, and don't assume that I'm just this universal mommy whose tits are kind of just on tap 24 seven, you know, like, you know, maybe I'm doing something else right now. Maybe I'm actually like, I've had people be like, I texted you two hours ago. Where are you? And I was like, maybe I was watching TV, you know, I get to do that. Um, 
you know, I, I had a friend recently where I was like really having a rough time emotionally and I just was like, hey, I'm, uh, and she was like, totally, I can listen to you. She's like, I just want to be totally straight up. What I have is I've got 10 minutes to listen to you. And then, you know, I think she was like, my surge chapters, like accountability council is coming over for a meeting. So then I got to go because I got to put out like snacks. And I was like, this is such, I was miserable, but I was totally cracking up because I'm like, this is such a femme emotional labor moment. And, but the point is that she was able to be like, this is, I got 10 minutes. Is that going to work for you? You know, cause it goes both ways. I could be like, actually what I need right now is I need to find somebody, whether it's a counselor, a crisis line, a friend, a tree, whatever, who can listen to me freaking out for, t- for an hour. It's not going to feel good if I'm cut off after 10 minutes or I could be like, Hey girl, yeah, 10 minutes, let's go. You know? And I think that so much of the time we, unfortunately people aren't met with that kind of narrative of negotiation it's just kind of like hey let me dump this huge problem on you please fix it and i think that like absolutely comes from like a place of ableism and capitalism and scarcity where we are in scarcity there's not enough care in systems and places so people get really desperate and they're just like please talk to me about this thing i'm coming from a place where i've survived really intense partner abuse and stalking multiple times and both times i was really really isolated i i had to deal with it myself it was very scary um and I came from the place like a lot of survivors of like, hey, I never want, I know what it's like to desperately reach out to a stranger for support. I'm never going to say no. You know, I'm always going to show up. And in more recent times, especially um, my mom started to die last year and I hit a lot of limits to my emotional capacity. And um, I just started to be like, okay, that's real. And I can also be like, hey, I really want to be there for you. And I'm actually supporting like 10 people in their processes right now. And I have my mom's stuff. I actually can't. Like, are there other people you can talk to? I can help you maybe like, here's some resources. Here's some people you can maybe reach out to. That kind of thing. So I guess like that's an important, I don't know if, I hope it's coming across, but I guess like part of the consent is also like really rooted in the fact that so many people are really isolated and don't have the services that we need for really desperate things that have to do with abuse, disability, you know, madness, mental health stuff. And so we reach out and I never want to shame anyone for doing that. And I also think that a lot of people I know who are doing disability work, transformative justice work, lots of kinds of work are like, fuck, I'm the lady you go to. I mean, I, I had a friend the other day who was like, I recently, I was working with a couple of my friends who are suicidal and I was doing it, you know, and I, you know, and I was really glad to, but then I really crashed afterwards. And my friend was like, it's hard to be one of the people who's good with suicide, isn't it? Who people go, oh, talk to that person. And I think a lot of people are in that, some version of that position where you, you know, we do care work, we're good at it. And then people go, oh, you know, I can't trust anyone with this, but you. And I think this is kind of, the consent is a big part of it, but I also think building out those skills. So there's not this feeling of, you know, there's just three people in the community who you can trust to talk to about mental health or disability or suicide or transformative justice, but that like a lot of people have those skills and that we have a lot of, I hate this word, but like abundance in terms of like being able to offer that to each other. Just one last question, which is that one of the other rules that you spell out for the ground rules for establishing a fair trade economy for emotional labor is that fair, here's, I'm going to quote, fair trade, (laughs) Fair trade care labor is not a one-sided, femphobic, shit, sexist shit show. <laughs> so, yeah. I think that's so funny. Why Why is it something people need to hear? Like, what? The patriarchy. The white capitalist, colonialist, ableist, the sexist patriarchy. That's why. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> In a sentence, and real quick, I will just say, because 
I mean, I think that is the heart of that. I think, and I want to be really clear, like I was really worried in putting this piece out in the world, which is a work in progress. I was like, I'm really, I'm not, I want to be really clear that I'm not coming from a biologically or gender essentialist place where I'm like, all femmes are mommy and all masculine people don't ever care. That's not true. That's bullshit. And another thing I said in this piece was like, these are all learnable skills, right? Um, and when we're in communities that support all genders of people learning how to care and receive care, you know, it happens, right? And we, we need to keep building that. Um, but I will say that like we live in a white capitalist, colonialist, sexist, ableist patriarchy. So in generally speaking and systematically, and, and there are systems that prop this up, you know, femme, feminine people are often assumed to be people who just automatically care that that's our role, you know, and that we don't have a choice about it. That's just what we are there to do. And in many communities, that is what we were rewarded for and valued for. And when we're not able to care, we're a bitch, you know, and it's kind of just like, wow, you know, like misogyny is still there in queer communities. It looks different. So all this shit can happen, you know, through any gender of people. But I don't want to recreate sexism. You know, I want to have femme and masculine and other genders. I want to have a gender universe, but I don't want to have this bullshit. You can read Leia's ground rules for a fair trade emotional labor economy in the summer print issue of Bitch and at bitchmedia.org. I also suggest you pick up her memoir, Dirty River, a queer femme of color dreaming her way home which was an American Library Association Stonewall Award winner in 2016. Check it out.